0: John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verses 1 to 36. We're going to read the first part of that together. Let's hear the reading of God's word this morning. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as Pastor Eric said this morning, we're continuing our series in the book of John, and today we're going to be seeing, um, it's a different kind of sermon We're a different kind of passage. We're going to be seeing uh, a number of different people who don't believe in Jesus interact with him. Um, I don't know if any of you are Shakespeare lovers here. If you are, you know Shakespeare could make... Um, a lot of hay out of mistaken identities. Right? Many of his comedies re- revolve around the idea that uh, someone thinks someone else is someone else. If that makes sense? Um, uh, and all sorts of kind of comedy can ensue from that. I'm not a, I'm not a Shakespeare guy. <laughs> um, if you are, you know who you are. You, everyone else probably knows who you are too. Um, I like Shakespeare if I can understand it, um, but I do particularly like these comedies when people uh, kind of mistake identities for someone else. It brings a lot of comedy with it. Um, as we're going through this passage today, we're going to see how Jesus keeps having these interactions in kind of a similar way with people who just don't get him. They do not understand him. They don't understand uh, who he is. It would, be, it would be comical if the stakes weren't so high. But the stakes are high. And the reason they don't get it, the reason they keep misunderstanding Jesus, is they don't believe What Jesus is saying about himself, who Jesus is saying that he actually is. They don't believe that he's been sent from heaven, that he's God. And so we're going to go through four different interactions today that these people have with Jesus. Four different types of unbelief that come out in our passage. So those will be our four kind of guiding points today. So here are the four. Uh, The first is benevolent tolerance. Second is sophisticated skepticism. The third is misguided confusion, and lastly, direct opposition. Let me say those again. Four kinds of unbelief Jesus is going to encounter today. Benevolent tolerance, sophisticated skepticism, misguided confusion, and direct opposition. Here's what I'm hoping today as we go through our passage. um, All of us have people in our lives who are not followers of Jesus. All of you have people in your lives who are not followers of Jesus. That might be you. But if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have people, whether they're your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family, you do have people in your lives who don't believe in Jesus. So what I want us to see today, as we're going through these four forms of unbelief, I want us to recognize what's going on. What's going on when people don't believe in Jesus? Jesus is going to show us some of that today. I want us to recognize it so that when we do see it in others, or when we see it in our own hearts, perhaps, and we can give those things to Jesus, speak to them. Give them to Jesus to conquer. So that's my hope today. So let's begin looking at that first form of unbelief, benevolent tolerance. So if you have your Bibles, look down again with me at verse 2. John says that the Feast of Booths was happening. Now the Feast of Booths, um, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, was one of these major festivals in the Jewish calendar. So Tons and tons of Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem. And you'd kind of make like a lean-to for yourself out of wood, and on, on the top you would um, you'd kind of put these leafy branches. All right? And this is what you would live in for that week while you were uh, during the feast. Um, everyone kind of cramming into Jerusalem, building the lean-tos. So that's kind of the, the, uh, the situation that is going on in, in Jerusalem. And so as you can imagine, uh, this became a very popular time for uh, people to get a message out if they wanted to. Right? So if you can imagine, if everyone had a week in the year uh, in the United States, this doesn't really work, it doesn't scale, but if everyone uh, were to go to D.C. and live in tents for a week, right, same kind of like uh, idea here. So the politicians would be out, right, you know it. There'd be a lot of bullhorns, people kind of getting their message out, and so that's what, that's what uh, was going on in Jerusalem during these Feast of the booze. And so, as we just read, when Jesus's siblings tell him he should go up to the Feast, to, like, let these disciples hear him speak. It was actually a pretty savvy suggestion. Uh, what they were suggesting, um, you've been doing all these signs. Why are you staying out in the middle of nowhere to do them? All right. so just to, you know, why would you stay out in West Virginia when everyone's traveling to D.C.? All right? everyone's going to be there. You should go. Uh, if anyone is from D- uh, West Virginia, uh, I don't apologize. I just compared your, home, your uh, state to Jesus' hometown, so... Um, But John adds this uh, interesting little comment in verse 5, where he says this, for not even his brothers believed in him. So why would he say that? Why would John put that there if his brothers are actually giving him a suggestion that makes a lot of sense if he wants to build his his following? The problem is, these these brothers, it might have been siblings, entirely misunderstood Jesus' motives And what was driving Jesus to go where he went? And specifically, who was driving Jesus to go where he went? Their assumption was that Jesus was kind of doing all of these things to gain a following, right? Uh, uh, And for his own kind of glory in a human sense. And it seems like they kind of broadly approve of that plan, interestingly enough. Uh, But they themselves are not following him. And that comes out in what they don't say. What they don't say to Jesus is, can we go and tell people about what you've been doing? It's not what they say. They say, why don't you go? It's a good idea, Jesus. You should go up there and you should build your disciples. And Jesus says to them, he responds, my time has not yet come. Now, if you've been with us in the book of John, you've you've probably heard Jesus make reference to an hour that's coming, right? His hour has not yet come or his hour is coming soon. He's done it several times. It's gonna keep coming up, Actually, in our passage later on today, he's going to make reference to that. But uh, for sharp-eyed readers, you might notice it's a different word. Right? Jesus says, my hour is not yet coming. But here, when he talks about going up to the feast, he says, my time has not yet come to go up. And Jesus has said, um, said before, in, back in John chapter 5, verse 19, that he only does what he sees the Father doing. All right, so he's not going to go up to Jerusalem until the Father sends him. And in saying this, he draws this really sharp contrast between himself and his siblings. And when he says in verse 6, Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, this might not have stung for them as much as, as we perhaps recognize it should have stung for them today. But either way, Jesus is drawing this really stark contrast between himself and his his brothers. They are not his followers. The world can't hate them because they are part of the world. Now again, coming back to this, it might seem odd Jesus is rebuking them because of what they were suggesting, right? You should go up and you should make more disciples. They were encouraging him. They were kind of benevolently benevolently tolerant of Jesus' message. But this is key. Benevolent tolerance is not a form of belief. It's not a form of belief in Jesus. It's a form of unbelief. And that is a very, very common form of unbelief today. I'm curious if I were to ask you all here if you've ever had someone hear about your faith that you go to church um, and give you a kind of bemused, kind smile and say something like, that's, that's great that you go to church. That's wonderful for you. Uh, and then change the subject as quickly as they can. All right, that's a, a fairly common. I bet quite a few of you have had some kind of interaction like that at some point. It's this kind of benevolent tolerance, but it's, it's, it's a way to avoid conflict, but more importantly, it's also a way for people to avoid actually interacting with Jesus' message, what he has to say, to avoid engaging with Jesus himself. Because if someone can convince himself or herself that they are totally great with people doing the faith thing. It's just not for them. And they don't have to actually wrestle with the actual message that Jesus is giving here. Now, if that might describe you, if that's perhaps a description of, of your own posture, I just warn you, that is very deadly. It's very deadly. Because bit by bit, you'll inoculate yourself against truth You will inoculate yourself against God's words to you, become more and more comfortable in kind of a place of judgment over religion, by necessity a place of judgment over God's words. There's no security in that place. Jesus claims that the only way to have eternal life is to follow him, and the alternative is eternal punishment. So that is a claim that everyone will need to deal with in this life or the next likely for many of us, you have people in your life that take this position of kind of being benevolently tolerant of your faith. So I just want to encourage you with tact and grace, do not let people avoid Jesus. Don't let them kind of skate past what, Jesus has to, what you know Jesus has to say without actually knowing it themselves. We don't live in a culture that's just saturated with um, accurate scriptural knowledge. And so if you sense this kind of benevolent tolerance in a conversation you're having with someone, ask that person what they think about Jesus. Ask if they've ever read anything that Jesus has himself actually said from the Bible. And then offer to do it with them. But don't let them sidestep the Savior. Don't let them sidestep the one that came to offer them salvation. Now, as we read earlier, Jesus' time does come, right? Right? presumably the father sends him up to the feast he goes up in private and john gives this sense that there was kind of this like electricity surrounding jesus at the at the feast there's there's people kind of kind of burbling about him talking about him everywhere which makes sense he's he's fed thousands of people he healed the man by the pool Uh, his signs are starting to get out presumably there's been more healings up to this point as well that John hasn't recorded. And so you'd expect there might be some kind of building messianic um, expectation, tension at this, at this feast. And people are starting to have opinions. They're starting to have opinions about Jesus. All right, verse 12, he's a good man. Other people know he's leading people astray. And it's into that situation that Jesus comes up to the feast. He comes into the temple and he begins teaching. That's going to bring us to our second form of unbelief. Calling sophisticated skepticism. So let's read verses 14 to 24 with me. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus begins teaching at the temple, and the Jews are shocked. They marveled, John says. They're marveling because they they know this guy didn't have any formal training. Some of you might know who Dave Grohl is. He's this incredible guitarist and drummer. He's given these interviews where he talks about how uh, he, d- he never really received any formal training at all. He learned drums on his bed. He apparently doesn't know many real chords. Um, and yet he's in this upper echelon of musicians, right? It's amazing. One, one could say you could marvel at this man's abilities uh, without ever having been taught any sort of formal music. Now, the Jews, most likely the religious levers, are marveling that Jesus knows so much without ever having been been taught in any way. But in Jesus' case, um, you, you can't learn the law and how to interpret it by ear like a guitar. The reason they were marveling is because they were watching the author describe his book, describe what he wrote in his book, without knowing that Jesus was the author. Now, these Jews here, they're they're getting a step closer than this previous form of unbelief. They're getting a step closer to actually engaging with Jesus' message and with Jesus himself, but they don't trust him. They don't trust the source. Uh, Around this time in history, rabbis would would regularly kind of lean on precedent, So they'd often be quoting previous rabbis in their teaching uh, because they wanted to make it really clear. They weren't trying to create some kind of like new or disruptive theology, um, we are, we're, we're almost like the opposite of that today, not quite, but almost. If someone were to tell you the only reason they believe something is because some old Puritan wrote it, uh, we'd be a little suspicious of that. We wouldn't think, like, is that original thinking? Are you actually dealing with um, thinking for yourself? Um, and so in a similar but a flipped way, uh, people might have been suspicious back then if you didn't ground your teachings in a previous teaching of some sort, previous rabbi's teaching. And so Jesus responds to their marveling first by doing just that. But he's not grounding it in a previous rabbi teaching, the rabbi's teaching. His teaching is not inventive in the human sense because it's directly from the Father. You saw that where Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. There's a second part to Jesus' response. He says in verse 17, look at that with me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What Jesus is saying here is that in order to recognize that his teachings are true, you have to want God's will to be done over your own will. Now, all of us here, every single one of us, has this fundamental disposition of our hearts. Either it's my will be done or it's God's will be done, thy will be done. Before the fall, humanity lived in this perfect joy because uh, the wills were perfectly aligned. There was no distinction between those things. There was no pain or suffering because no one was kind of straining against the Creator's will. But after the fall, Adam and Eve decided they wanted their will over God's. After, After Adam and Eve decided they wanted their will over God's, there's been this kind of rebellious disposition of all of our hearts inside of all of us. Our, our natural disposition is to say, not thy will be done, God, but my will be done. So, These religious leaders' natural disposition towards God was, was one of resistance, right? It was one of frustration. My will be done. And so, as a consequence to them, Jesus' words seemed incomprehensible. And Jesus is even going to give them this, an example of, of their natural disposition against God. In verse 19, he says, Moses gave you the law which prohibits murder. Side note, prohibits murder. That's my addition. And yet you're still trying to kill me. That's how opposed to Jesus' teaching they are. That's the extent of their rebellion against God. Their preference would be that Jesus no longer exists to make their lives easier, and they're willing to kill him to do that in direct violation of the law. You saw the crowd respond. They say, you have a demon. (laughs) Who's trying to kill you? Um which is an insult these leaders are going to use more times in John, when it, presumably when they don't know how to respond to what Jesus is saying, they just start insulting him. So they say, you must have a demon. And Jesus ignores that, and he said, he, he kind of goes straight to the reason that they're trying to kill them. He healed this man by the Bethesda pool in the, on the Sabbath back in John 5. So let me read verses 21 to 24 one more time of our passage here. Jesus answered them, I did one work. Speaking again about the the healing at the Bethesda pool. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now, To understand what Jesus is saying in this section, we need to talk just for a moment about circumcision and how it was practiced in Jesus' time. So circumcision was this Jewish sign for men, for boys. uh, That was this physical physical sign of of entering into God's covenant community. There's a lot going on with all the things that it symbolized. We're just going to talk about a couple of them today. But one of those things that it symbolized was kind of the sense of completion. Jewish rabbis would sometimes say that it, it would perfect a boy. Because what it would do as it would make him kind of complete and capable of joining into God's covenant community. All right? In Leviticus 12:3, Moses tells the people of Israel, you have to circumcise, they have to circumcise their boys on the 8th day after they're born. Which might mean, in order to keep that law, there's going to be some circumcisions on the Sabbath. That would happen all the time. And because they recognized That uh, at some level, that act of completing a boy's entrance into God's community was not in conflict with God's Sabbath rest that he encouraged them to take, that he instructed them to take. So Jesus is saying, how much more with what I did for that man that was an invalid for 38 years? Circumcision was kind of the shadow of what what Jesus came to do perfectly. Jesus was cut off so that we could be healed, so that we could be completed, so that we could enter into God's covenant family, his community. So, of course, that healing that happened for this man who was an invalid should have happened on the Sabbath. Both circumcision, which dealt with with part of of a man, and healing of this whole man's body, all of those things were pointing ahead to Jesus' true work of complete healing for those who follow him. Complete spiritual healing, and one day complete physical healing as well in heaven for those who submit their wills to his. And unless our will is to do God's will, we can't judge (laughs) Jesus and his actions with right judgment. We'll be a skeptic. You'll be a skeptic, like these religious leaders were. Now, uh, being a skeptic today is kind of cool. It's kind of cool. It's cool to be the one who, who can evaluate everything, who can kind of pick out Uh, inconsistencies in someone's argument who can kind of evaluate things kind of from a detached perspective and recognize where there's maybe problems with what people are saying. And that is really to the devil's advantage when it comes to Jesus, because the devil wants us to get confused on this. He wants us to believe that we are sober and we're kind of intellectually consistent and thoughtful and sophisticated as we evaluate what God has said instead of recognizing rebellion for what it is. When we're falling into my will thinking instead of thy will, this is what the devil did in the garden. (laughs) It's exactly what he did. He made Eve think that she was kind of thoughtfully evaluating uh, God's words to see if they made sense to her. The devil made her think that her rebellion was just kind of this sophisticated skepticism. So Jesus' words here about doing God's will, go right to the heart of our relationship with God. My will be done or thy will be done. C.S. Lewis once wrote in The Great Divorce, kind of from the perspective of this man named George MacDonald, he said this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Now, it might be that you have struggled with, with faith. Maybe you feel like you've never quite gotten it. Jesus' words never feel quite right. Maybe scripture has too many things you just can't reconcile in your mind with who you think God ought to be, what he ought to be like. If that's the case for you, then there's a really good chance that this is the reason. That somewhere in your heart, you don't want to give up your view of good and evil. How you think things ought to be. How you think God ought to act. How you think you ought to be able to live your life. Your will is to do God's will. I'm sorry, your will is to do your will, not God's will. And If that's you, you should ask yourself, do you really believe that you are in the position to evaluate God, to evaluate his goodness and his will? Maybe may be a different question. Has that skepticism brought you any lasting peace? Because I'm willing to bet the answer is no. God offers peace to those who submit their will to his. But you'll have to recognize that the true definition of good might be a lot more complex, a lot more eternal than you're able to comprehend. Ask God to help you commit your ways and your life to his will and not your own, and he will give you rest when you do. And you'll be able to see that Jesus' words true. Now, even if you are a follower of Jesus and have been for years, this is not a fight that's over for anyone. <laughs> my will over God's will. My will against thy will. Even the Apostle Paul talks about having to wrestle with the old man that keeps coming up in his heart, right, enticing him to do things that he doesn't want to do. Now, if you're really engaging with God's word, as a believer, you are guaranteed to come across things that bother you. It seems strange. The reason you're guaranteed to do that is because our hearts are corrupt. So when we come up against God (laughs) in all the ways that he's revealed himself, we will find things that we have to wrestle with. But part of being a follower of Jesus means that we not only decide to accept Jesus as our Savior, but also as our Lord, which means there are times when we have to acknowledge we do not understand why God does certain things, but that he is God and that we are not we have to give our wills over to Jesus. And when we do, what comes is peace and joy and lives kind of functioning the way that God designed them to function as much as they can on the side of eternity without trying to work against the grain, to rebel against God's will. That's sophisticated skepticism. So let's, let's move on to our third form of unbelief in our passage, misguided confusion. I'm going to read verses 25 to 31 now. Read with me. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So you can hear the messianic tension building, (laughs) building. You can kind of hear the gossip flying around, everyone in their booths. They're lean-tos walking around with, each, with one another, and Jesus is this major topic of conversation. Maybe he's the Messiah. Probably not. Maybe. Maybe not. And the reasoning for both is actually quite strange, but it's also telling. The reason they give that he might be the Messiah is because the authorities have just backed off in arguing with him. So maybe they know. Maybe know this is the one. And the reason they give for him not being the Messiah is that they all know where he he came from. They know where he was born. Now, both of these reasons, if you'll notice, they have to do with the religious authorities, and both are wrongheaded. especially the reason they give for Jesus not being the Messiah. Scripture does, did say where the Messiah would come from, In Micah 5.2 says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And that's the really telling part of this. These people didn't believe because they didn't know what to look for. They'd been taught wrong. They'd been taught wrong. They were getting faulty information about what Scripture said. And so they didn't believe in Jesus when they saw him. (laughs) It's actually probably the saddest form of all these unbeliefs in some sense, because what they'd the problem was they had been misguided from Scripture about what the Bible said about the Messiah. So what Jesus does again, he points them again back to the fact that he had been sent, and that the one who sent him was true, and they did not know the one who sent him. So John's uncovering some of the irony of their thinking here. Even though, even though these crowds were actually misguided, and why they thought uh, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah, that they didn't know that they knew where he came from. What John's showing is that they didn't, in fact, know Jesus' true origin. They knew where he was born, but as Jesus is kind of hinting at here, they didn't actually know where he came from. So this still happens today, unfortunately, and you know it in many ways. We do not, again, as I said earlier, we don't live in a society that's kind of immersed in accurate scriptural knowledge. Uh, people have some idea about Jesus. Most people know the, wor- know, know the name Jesus know something about him, but they don't know anything near the full extent of what Scripture says, of what Jesus' message is. All right, it's another, another reason to be inviting people to interact with Jesus so that they know what he says, what he actually says, and not just what they've kind of heard about him from shows or books, or other cultural inputs. Um, I recently had a brief interaction with someone while we were traveling. I, I didn't know him at all. I introduced myself. We got on the topic of faith after he heard what I did. Um, He was intoxicated, so the the conversation was fairly herky-jerky, but but as he was trying to explain the New Testament to me, um, I was really saddened. I was really saddened as I was hearing him explain the New Testament. And it was just, it it emphasized for me again, (laughs) someone who had grown up going to church, uh, that in many, many cases around us, people don't really know Scripture, and what they do know has kind of been filtered very heavily. Uh, And in some, many cases deformed to an entirely different message. So, brothers and sisters, when you recognize someone does not really understand what's true about Jesus, do not let them stay like that. Do not let them stay in their unbelief. They aren't going to learn more about Jesus unless somebody tells them. In some very rare cases, they might begin reading the Bible on their own, but that's rare. Paul says in Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The next time you have a conversation with someone, you realize they've got some bad information about Jesus. (laughs) This is not correct. Don't let them stay like that. Ignore, Ignore the discomfort that may come. If someone was bleeding out in front of you and they were insisting to you that they're fine, you would not let them continue in that way because of the uncomfortableness of telling them that they're wrong. Tell people what's true about Jesus. Now at the end of this section, we do get this little flicker of hope. You probably noticed it as we read it. There's just this one verse in this whole passage. Uh, but it is this little flicker. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? So some people are starting to open their eyes. They're starting to see the signs. They're starting to recognize that this man is a lot more than just a good teacher. But you see what they have to do. They have to engage with Jesus himself. They have to know his message in order to do that. They have to know the signs that he's done. Not just what they've heard from faulty sources. So let's go to our final form of unbelief. Direct opposition. I'm going to read verses 32 to 36. Join me, or read along with me, please. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So this muttering and the booze has gotten loud, loud enough that the Pharisees have heard. And so now they're teaming up with the chief priests to send officers to arrest Jesus. So if, if, if unbelief is a progression, um, this is kind of the final stop. Direct opposition to Jesus And Jesus responds again it seems to the crowds perhaps in the temple as he's teaching and he tells them he's going back to the one who sent him where he actually came from and they won't be able to find him there and once again they don't get it they don't understand what he's saying as I mentioned at the beginning if there were to be kind of a, a secondary theme running through this whole thing it would be uh, just how everyone keeps misunderstanding Jesus and what he's saying his brothers misunderstand him. The Jewish leaders misunderstand him. The crowd misunderstands what he's trying to say. And, they're, and here again, they, they, don't, they can't quite figure out what Jesus is talking about. Um, at, well, it's not just that they can't quite figure it out. They're nowhere near it. And John's kind of building the suspense here. Right, we're starting to notice John's, John's, uh, John's starting to point ahead to something that is, is coming. He's hinting at it. He's hinting that Jesus' ministry is not going to be this just kind of uninterrupted, happy path to glory. There's something that is dark that's coming. So Jesus confused the crowd with his words, but we, we, we know what he was foreshadowing. Before long, the Pharisees and the chief priests would, would find what they thought was the chink in Jesus' armor. They'd find a disciple who was willing to betray him. They'd find the perfect time to, to arrest him. It wouldn't be during the Feast of Booze when everyone was walking around talking about Jesus, They would do it in the middle of the night. They'd do a fast rig trial and get him convicted and killed as quickly as possible. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this is what's coming. And here's the cost of unbelief. Our unbelief is not a costless state of mind. Our rebellion against God's will is not a costless offense. Jesus had to die for that unbelief. So that anyone who repents of it, turns away from it, begins to follow him, has the punishment for their rebellion paid for. But that's not the end of it. John Calvin once wrote, and I'm going to paraphrase this slightly, God is so in control that even when the enemy attacks, God turns it and orders it so that through those very attacks, God accomplishes his will and his kingdom still comes. Jesus knew what was coming, and he came anyway to rescue us who had rejected him. And even though these people opposed him, they opposed him all the way to killing him, they couldn't stop him. They could not stop the eternal purposes of the Almighty God. In fact, he even uses their opposition to his eternal plan, in his eternal plan, to rescue sinners from their own rebellion against him. Because after he was killed, we know the good news, that Jesus came back from the dead, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, and that he's sitting beside the Father now. He's back with the one who sent him. So brothers and sisters, when you encounter real, angry opposition to Jesus, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Because Jesus can't be stopped. His kingdom is here and his kingdom is coming. The day is coming when he will return and he will put an end to all opposition. Now as we close, there's a few quick things I I just want to highlight that I hope we can take away from this passage this morning. First, as we said at the beginning, there is unbelief all around us. So when you see it, recognize it. Recognize it for what it is. If it's tolerance or skepticism or confusion, don't let them go unaddressed. Don't let those go unaddressed. Tell the people about your king. Tell him what he's like. Tell him that he's willing to die for their rebellion, that he did die, that he's alive today. And if it's direct opposition, take heart that there is nothing that can stop your king. Second, you might be a follower of Jesus. You might see some of these forms of unbelief in your own heart. Most likely you can. If that's the case, tell Jesus about them. Ask him to do his will in your heart and life over your own. There's a reason Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer saying, Thy thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Tell Jesus about them. Finally, you might be squarely in one of these camps of unbelief. Maybe you're in a few of them. If that's you and if you don't trust Jesus, I just encourage you to do it today. Don't wait. Don't wait to give your will over to his. As Pastor Eric said earlier, I would love to talk to you about that. Pastor Eric would love to talk to you about how to do that. But don't wait. Jesus has come. (laughs) He's come to address our unbelief, to come to show us what he's like, show us what the Father is like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus your son to earth to address our unbelief both intellectually like we see in our passage today, but he also came, we know, to address the punishment that we earned by rebelling against you. So Father, I ask that you would give your followers here a lot of encouragement, courage, and boldness and compassion. So that when we we do see unbelief around us, people who don't believe you, don't believe in you, that you would give us a burden to help them understand what you're like, what Jesus is like, Jesus, what your message is. Jesus, we thank you for showing that to us, for overcoming our unbelief. And as we find places in our hearts that have areas of unbelief, where we don't want to give up our own will, we ask that you take those places. We want you to storm those little castles in our heart so that all that's left is the joy of knowing you as both Savior and Lord of our lives. Father, I suspect there are some here whose wills have not been given over to yours. So I just ask that you would help them to want your will over their own, want your glory over their own, want the eternal and peaceful life that you give to those who give their lives to you. Thank you, Father. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.